how do we solve a problem? How do we actually do it? Not talk about it, not theorize about it, do it. Some of the theory people need to get out of the office and actually go look at stuff. And they'll find out where things are good and they'll find out where stuff is bad. The global food system is facing unparalleled challenges and changes. So how can we reset for a better, more sustainable future? Introducing Control-Alt-Meat, the weekly podcast that explores the issues transforming the global food business. I'm your host, Katie Briefel. Come join me as I speak to the innovators and investors, policymakers and product developers, the scientists and the chefs, who are all on the front line reshaping the future of our food. This week's episode is with Dr. Temple Grandin, who is well known to many for her trailblazing work as a spokesperson for people with autism and for her lifelong work with animal behavior. Dr. Grandin has been with Colorado State University for over 25 years and has authored more than 60 scientific papers on animal behavior. Her life's work has been to understand her own autistic mind and to share that knowledge with the world, aiding in the treatment of individuals with the condition. Her understanding of the human mind has aided her in her work with animal behavior, and she is one of the most respected experts in both autism and animal behavior in the world. In 2010, Time 100 named her on their annual list of the 100 most influential people in the world. She was also the subject of the Emmy and Golden Globe winning semi-biographical film Temple Grandin. In this episode, Temple shares her story of battling autism at a young age, and how she leveraged that to inform her work in later life. We also discuss the groundbreaking work to reform animal slaughterhouses. Her ability to see things differently to most adults has led to a profound understanding of animal behavior, informing landmark improvements to the treatment of animals in the livestock industry. Just introduce myself. I'm um, Temple Grandin, professor of animal science at Colorado State University. And I've been in this industry a long time, starting out in Arizona in the 70s. And some of the very earliest work that I did, and this is where autism helped me because I'm an extreme visual thinker, I started looking at what cattle were seeing when they went through a raceway to get vaccinated. Nobody else had even thought about looking at that, about what cattle were looking at. And I found that shadows, chains hanging down, vehicles parked next to the fence would make the cattle stop and refuse to move through the facility. And back in the 70s, that was very new stuff. Yeah. So Temple, for people who are less familiar with this, could you talk a little bit about how um, how they used to process animals in that way and then, and then how you kind of suggested changing that? Well, there's um, one of the biggest problems is uh, people uh, just rushing and yelling and screaming and getting cattle too excited. Um, back in the 70s, uh, in the 80s, cattle handling was absolutely terrible. So you have two parts to improving handling, training and the behavior of the people and designing facilities. And for the first part of my career, I emphasized more on the engineering side. In fact, I made a mistake that a lot of young engineers make when I was in my 20s. I thought I could fix everything with engineering a better system. I can fix half the problems with better facilities. The other half of the of the uh, equation is going to be management. Because if you understaff and you overwork people, you're not going to get very good work. But I've developed a number of pieces of equipment for a large meat plant. I developed a device called the Center Track Restrainer System. That's in a lot of large plants. Uh, another thing I've worked on is developing animal welfare guidelines. I did this about 
over 20 years ago uh, that used outcome-based objective scoring to evaluate the performance of a slaughterhouse from an animal welfare standpoint, measuring things like stunning efficacy, percentage of cattle and pigs that fell down during handling, percentage that vocalized when you handle them because that's a sign of stress. Pigs and cattle, uh, if they're mooing and squealing um, in the stunning area, you've got something wrong, like maybe a head restraint, putting too much pressure on the neck. Mm. Uh, that was some of the work that I've done. Yeah, so you've suggested some improvements to the process, um, which you've hinted at. What other changes have been made in slaughterhouses as a result of your work? Well, in using numerical objective scoring. Now, a lot of my systems were out there. Before I got hired by McDonald's Corporation, this would have been back in the late 90s, to implement their animal welfare uh, programs in slaughterhouses. And it was very interesting taking vice president-level executives out on their first tours, because when things went well, it was fine. But when they saw something bad, like a half-dead emaciated dairy cow going into their product, they go, whoa, there's things we got to fix here. It was interesting from a policy standpoint to watch animal welfare shift from something you give to legal, something you delegate to the public relations department, to something that was real, that now their supply chain management department is going to have to do something about it. I call that getting the suits out of the office. And it was just like a, a show we have here in the U.S. called Undercover Boss. The CEO gets out into business, finds some really bad stuff going on in something like a, a gas station convenience store, and he's just horrified. Right. So you were, you were bringing the, the realities of that food chain to the people who are making the decisions. That's right. And to what extent do you feel comfortable that most of our slaughterhouses, or particularly in the U.S., have, in, have got to a... A, a level of state that you're happy with. Do you think that we've made enough progress in that space? Isla slaughterhouses are working just fine. Um, the thing I'm concerned about now is the animals coming into the slaughterhouse. And when I see a big welfare problem now at a slaughterhouse, it's uh, pigs that don't want to walk. You know, we've bred them so much for make lots of beef, make lots of pounds of pork that you're going to get you get problems with leg conformation, lameness. I just got a nasty video just the other day from someone who works in a slaughterhouse. He was a yard manager. And um, some market hogs came in and they'd walk and lay down and not want to get up. Now, that's a problem you have to fix at the farm. And when we implemented the McDonald's audits back in, the, um, in 1999, I saw more change than I'd seen in my whole career because now they had to manage equipment. And we were able to fix most of these slaughterhouses with repairs, training, changing lighting, uh, non-slip flooring, uh, stunner maintenance, and got them really working really well. And then about 10 years later, we started getting all kinds of problems with stiff, sore cattle coming in that did not want to walk. And there's several different factors that cause this. Heavier and fatter at a younger age, uh, feeding a, a not enough roughage. Also, genetic selection for lots of muscle. We're getting some uh, congestive heart failure problems and late-stage deads in real heavy feedlot cattle that we never had before. And so I got the slaughterhouses fixed. They're not where the problem is now. It's what you bring in there. And the problem is that these problems with these animals slowly get worse. I call that bad becoming normal. And people don't notice it because people say, well, they're just big and fat. Or you've got young people now coming into the industry and think it's normal for heavy fat cattle to be lame and, and be stiff and not want to get up. So the gold standard has changed of what is healthy and normal 
and also people are desensitized as well so seeing this is no longer shocking or surprising or unusual is that what you're basically saying well you have to have um you know subject objective standards a really important one is layman's score and there's been a uh, this and i'm talking young fed cattle i'm not talking about the old breeding cows young fed cattle and uh, the day shift at a plant, they'll be just fine. The night shift is one you have a few feed yards that will bring in a lot of cattle that are really messed up. They'll do things like die in the yards. And you get some of the, the same problems with, with pigs. And I've done some recent work with broiler chickens. And it's very critical that when they're ready to go to the processor that they go, because if they stay two more days, then you're going to have downed chickens, lameness, woody breasts. Uh, the problems I'm seeing now called biological overload. We're pushing that animal's biology. And in chicken, it's all been with just regular breeding. There's no GMOs. There's no feed supplements. It's just regular feed they give them. They are some supplements like methionine they have to give them. But that's a normal nutrient. Um, they've been genetically bred to grow really fast. And, they're, and they've done that with pigs. And it's okay to do this to a certain point. We have to start looking at what's optimal. But as soon as you start seeing problems, lameness, difficulty walking, stiffness, a week go down easily, then you need to be correcting it. Because to me, the biggest problems I see now at the slaughterhouse is what's brought in there. And don't blame the truckers for it. That's not where the problem is. And to what extent is this um, tweaking and evolving a system that is ultimately um, fundamentally problematic in itself? You know, we can make these small changes to a food system, but if... We're, we're trying to drive profit um, and and feed more and more people. It, to what extent are we gonna, do we need to overhaul the whole system? Well, COVID was a gigantic wake-up call. In the U.S., 300,000 pigs, market weight pigs, had been destroyed on the farms. Sometimes it was a really bad methods because uh, there was no slaughterhouses to go to because it was shut during COVID. And cattle you were able to put on... Uh, on uh, you know, hay, and they didn't have to kill a lot of cattle. And the poultry is a much smaller cycle, so it's a smaller problem. You see, the paradox you have, if you have a centralized supply chain, I don't care if it's for cattle or pigs, or it's for electronic chips, it's the same. A big centralized supply chain is very, very cheap, very, very efficient, but when you break it, you are in a ton of problems. Right now, we can't build cars because we can't get enough electronic chips for the GPS unit and other things in the car. There's a single factory built burned. I've been following this very closely. There's some other factories in the world that if they should be destroyed, uh, well, all the little gadgets you have, I don't have to stop making them because they won't be able to have the chips. You see, it's the same problem, a concentrated industry for meat or a concentrated industry for electronic chips or for any other thing. Now, if I distribute the supply chain, right now we are building chip factories in the U.S. Right now, due to some of the disruption due to a fire in a single plant. The other thing that's happened since COVID is we've had many beef producers now building real small plants for slaughtering and medium-sized plants to distribute the supply chain. But when you do this, and it doesn't matter whether it's food or whether it's electronics, uh, it's going to be more expensive. A more distributed supply chain is more robust. It will not break as easily, but it's going to cost more. So those small plants are going to have to be in a niche market, like you know, family rancher, uh, all grass-fed, direct to um, uh, direct from ranch to customer. Uh, it'd be similar to our craft beer industry, right here where I live. We've got 
gigantic Budweiser plant, huge Budweiser plant, and right beside it, 20 little craft brewers, and they coexist. And during COVID, the craft brewers made hand sanitizer, or let's say something, some other thing happened, the small plants can just convert to regular on, a, on an emergency basis. But we've got to get more distributed supply chains. And I've been going deep into the um, chip, uh, 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 electronic chip supply chain because it's so similar. You have high-end fancy chips, and then you've got what they call commodity generic chips. You have the same thing in meat. You've got your high-end, high-welfare, pasture, organic, and then you've got your commodity beef. Same thing. That's the thing I find really interesting. Big. Very efficient but very fragile. Yes. But if we're going to feed billions of people, um, you know, by 2050, to what extent are, are we going to be able to keep up with this demand for meat by using animal meat? Should we be pivoting, for example, to lab-grown meat or, um, or plant-based meat, for example? I've been doing a lot of thinking because I've been, you know, people have called me the evil slaughterhouse designer. So the slaughterhouse designer has been thinking about the future. Mm-hmm. Maybe someday the plants will be obsolete. Let's look at some vegeta- vegan alternatives that are not sustainable. Almond milk. Almonds are gigantic water pigs. Mm-hmm. Right now in California, they're ripping out almond groves because they cannot irrigate them. They do not have enough water. Mm-hmm. Now, something like oat milk, that makes a lot more sense. But mm-hmm. almond milk is not sustainable. Mm, absolutely. Uh, the other thing with lab-grown meat, you've got to look at your energy inputs. It's going to be extremely difficult to beat chickens. Oh, man, are they efficient. And if you do them right, and right now I'm consulting with a major chicken company here in the U.S., the birds are fine. In fact, they have these little swinging platforms that they use the wave broilers. This little platform will be swinging like a big, fat, heavy broiler will jump up on that thing to go for a ride if you do it right. But you slip up and do anything wrong, then you're going to have downers, you're going to have lameness, you're going to have problems. They are super efficient. It's amazing. Like I was involved with some autopsies of boilers and and this gigantic breast meat. And there's a point where if you push that too hard, then you can start to have problems. Well, they get something called kinky back. And I tend to look at it as an engineer more than a veterinarian. And and you're overweighting the back and then it erodes. And then the next thing you know, you got an infection in the center of the back, which is like super weird. You have to look at what is optimal. And you can do boilers right. The other thing I think is important in these big systems is on most of our broiler uh, operations in the U.S., a family farm under contract raises the birds. I'll tell you right now, it's much better for the birds Mm. than having a bunch of uh, just paid employees where you're understaffed and they do stuff really sloppily. I really liked going out and visiting a chicken house in the middle of a cornfield in Nebraska with a family farmer there that's really interested in doing things right. Yeah, because there are regulations around the humane killing of livestock, but as we know, they're not always upheld in practice. How can we resolve that? Well, I'll tell you what resolves a lot of things. The power of the purse, the power of buyers. When I worked over in 1999 with McDonald's, Burger King, and Wendy's, we went and we cleaned up the slaughterhouses. Now, the thing is, they were quite easy to fix. For most of them, there were 75 big plants in the U.S., and we did not have to go out and buy tons of expensive equipment, a lot of repairs, training, free plants had to get a new plant manager, uh, non-slip flooring, changing lighting, really simple things, got most of those plants working really well. Now, some of the corrections we have to do out in the farms, that's going to be a lot more expensive. But there's some things we've got to change. And I've been getting more and more interested in integrating crops with grazing livestock. 
This is where it's so good to go across disciplines. About three years ago, an agronomist came and gave a talk in our animal science department. And I learned something about agronomy. I didn't know that grazing animals in Iowa and Illinois, where our best farmland is, bison, a grazing animal, created that farmland. Animals are part of the land. You use them right to improve the land. So I'm a big proponent of, okay, we take our corn and our soy and we rotate it with um, a cover crop that we can graze. And it's very, very site specific. A cover crop that will work in Louisiana won't work in Illinois or North Dakota. You've got to be get something local that will work really right. We've got to get the animals and the land back together. And that's a win-win situation because you do it right, you improve soil health, you can cut down on artificial um, fertilizer use, improve the land. The other thing, I've been looking at the whole system, biofuels. Biofuels, like, okay, we take corn, we make it into ethanol. It's sustainable up to a point. But if it gets to the point where we're exporting ethanol, that's no longer sustainable. You're putting on a diesel boat, mm -hmm. nothing sustainable without that. Biofuels are sustainable up to a point. And then it's the point they become unsustainable. So this brings up this whole thing of what's the optimum thing to do? You see, we got to start putting whole systems together. And the grazing animal is, is part of it. Absolutely. If you use them right. And then the other problem all around the world, up into the outback of Australia, you've got an area there, the site of Western Europe, and you can't crop it. There's no way to crop it. There's not enough water to grow crops, but you can raise sheep and cattle on it. If you do it right, you have to make sure you don't overload it. That's the only way to raise food on the Australian outback. I've been there. It was a gigantic wake up call flying in a small plane over that. So Temple, you've talked a lot about how your autism has helped you um, understand the experience of animals, um, in particular in the cattle industry. And you've said before that the skills that people with autism bring to the table should be nurtured for their benefit to society. I'd love for you to talk about your early experiences as a child with autism and, and how you came into this, this study in this industry. Well, I didn't talk until age four. And when I was a very young child, I loved art. I'm a visual thinker. In fact, it's now been discovered that there's kind of three kinds of thinking. There's object visualizer, photorealistic pictures. In fact, I discussed that in my book, uh, Thinking in Pictures, How I Think in Pictures. Then there's the visual spatial, more mathematical pattern thinker, and then there are the verbal thinkers. Now, when I first started out in my work with cattle, I thought other people thought in pictures the same way I did. And can you explain what, what that means? So you must be a very verbal thinker. I am. But it was a shock to me to learn that most other people don't think in pictures. Like when I was telling, talking to you about um, the ethanol, I mean, I see ethanol plants. I see fields of corn. It's not abstract. When I see problems with pigs that don't want to walk, I'm now seeing this blurry, awful phone video that was sent to me just the other day from somebody working in the yards at one of our major pork plants. I think we'll leave out what the name of the company is. But it was obviously something that needed to be fixed. I tend to think in specific examples. Got it. And then I and then the specific examples can get grouped together into categories. The verbal thinker tends to overgeneralize. All right, biofuels. Let's go do it. But then there's a point where it goes from being sustainable to being not sustainable. You see, I see that. I'm now seeing driving through Brazil and, and kilometer after kilometer after kilometer of sugarcane monoculture to be burned in a power plant. 
Now, a certain amount of that is sustainable. Then there's a point where it gets not sustainable. Okay, I grow a chicken really fast and I do it really right. It's fine. But then there's a point where I push the system too hard. The chickens, um, I've got downers and heart failure and massive infection inside them and all kinds of other problems. So what you're saying is you're able to join dots maybe sooner or clearer than maybe other people who think differently aren't able to. And 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 nothing is abstract. Uh, And I take, and I also, I've been in this industry 50 years. I've traveled all around the world. Now, since COVID, I haven't done any international travel. I'm just doing U.S. travel right now. Um, I've been to Australia. I've, I went in that plane over the Australian outback. I went to cattle station in the middle of the Australian outback. I've been there. Um, I've been in Indonesia. I've been in China. And they have a, a cropping system where they have 10 very diverse crops in the same field uh, in strips, mm. which was real interesting. The land there was totally different. I've been in every part of the U.S. I've been in South America. I've been in Central America, Mexico, Hawaii. Um huge amount of different places and I look out the window of them yeah and I learn a lot when I do that and you've talked about um many great thinkers who've created um technologies we rely on today uh were probably autistic uh, we wouldn't have that's it. Right. and could you talk a little bit about that well yes um I've got a book here but that's about Elon Musk this book came out six years ago and you see these post-it notes yep. these are six-year-old post-it notes that I put in there when the book first came out, marking the pages where I thought Elon had autism. Now he announced to the world on a comedy show called Saturday Night Live that he's on the autism spectrum. So now I can talk about it. Mm. Einstein did not talk until age three. Right. So similar to... He'd be in an autism program today. We can argue about whether or not he's autistic, but he would be in a special ed program Mm. with no speech until age three. Michelangelo dropped out of school when he was 12. Now, the other thing that helps some of these great minds is exposure. I got in, I got exposed to the cattle industry as a teenager. So how did that start? Because I understand that as a kid, you maybe, I think a science teacher had recognized that you might think differently and encouraged you to kind of explore that subject a little bit more. Could you talk a bit about that? Well, my science teacher actually encouraged me. I was real interested in optical illusions and visual perception. And he encouraged me on that. He didn't do any livestock things. But the work that I had done on visual perception then moved over into my livestock work because the first thing I thought to do was to look at what cattle were seeing as they went through the cattle handling facility. And the cattle exposure started when I went to my aunt's ranch as a teenager. Michelangelo, think about where he grew up. Every church was commissioning art. He also grew up in a family that did stone cutting. So he got exposed to the tools. That's really important. We've got kids growing up today that never use tools. Mm-hmm. Um, they're totally removed from the world of practical things. They don't even know what a container ship is. They don't even know what it is. You see, now I, I see it. And then I'm seeing things like the Ever Given stuck in the Suez Canal. Then she got parked for three months where it's really hot. And she had laptops in some of those containers. And I don't want to buy a laptop that was in those top containers frying in that heat. So you went down this route of you had this teacher who encouraged you to explore science. How did that lead you to studying cattle um, and their experiences in slaughterhouses? Well, I got exposed to the cattle industry at my aunt's ranch. And then I started visiting the big feed yards. And then I noticed, I observed, well, there was a shadow across uh, the, the alleyway and the lead animal stopped at it. And other people were not noticing that. And 
And the mistake I made is I didn't even know verbal thinking existed. Now I've learned that verbal thinking is very, very different from the way I think and the way I problem solve. Okay, I was talking about this kinky back problem in the chicken. I'm now seeing a diagram of the chicken and I'm going, okay, the breast is really heavy. Now I overweight the spine. That's I'm looking at as an engineer where the veterinarian's analyzing what the disease process is. I'm going, why is it infected in the first place? When it started out, it's not infectious. Maybe we're going to have to cut back a little bit on the breast growth or we breed a bird with stronger spines and we don't have the problem. And it was in an article that came out in 2016, they said it was an emerging problem. Well, that research would have been done six years ago. Well, you see, you're pushing the system and now you get this problem. Now, if somebody young comes into the industry, they don't realize that 15 years ago, you never had this problem. You see, that's the problem. We've got problems with stiff, sore, lame cattle and young people that come in now think that's normal. Oh, I remember years of my career where this was definitely not normal. Fed cattle were frisky when you handled them. And you've become a best-selling author and a very in-demand speaker. What inspired you to start writing about um, both autism and also the cattle industry? What, what, what inspired this putting from pen to paper? Well, I, my, there's a scene in the HBO movie about me where I go up to the editor and I get his card. Because I realized if I wrote for that magazine, that could really help my career. And then I produced an article that was a summary of my thesis, my master's thesis research on different types of uh, head restraints used uh, in big feed yards when they were vaccinating cattle. And then I, then I asked, can I contribute to the column? So I started doing a column. And then it gradually changed to doing, being the livestock editor for the magazine, you know, working into it slowly. And then for a while, I worked for a feedlot construction company. It's where I learned a lot about concrete work and steel work and drafting. And then I started my business one design project at a time. Everything was the engineering approach when I started. I thought I could build self-managing systems. One client at a time. I can remember Tiny Ranch where I'd laid out a loading ramp and a scale. And I was down there all the time making sure my tiny project was going to work. And then I was about 10 years out of high school and I did those big dip fat projects. Could you elaborate on this? Well, they were, um, had a scabies outbreak in, in Arizona, which is a parasite that gets on cattle and makes them really itchy. And they were, it's, it's a disease that has to be controlled. So all the feed yards had to put in dipping vats to get rid of scabies. All of a sudden they had to build these things and they came to me. And I remember when one of the cattle feeders walked up to me, and I said, give me three weeks. This was all pre-internet. This was in the 70s. And I didn't know how to do the reinforced concrete. You better believe it. I picked up that phone and I called until I could get a drawing for how to do the concrete reinforcement. What do you mean by concrete reinforcement? Okay, the, a dipping vat is a tank in the ground made out of concrete. And to keep that from falling apart, you have to put reinforcement rods into the concrete, crisscross reinforcement rods. And you have to use enough rods and you have to tie them. So you've done some incredible work in improving um, this infrastructure since the 70s. Where do you see innovation um, happening going forward? What what can we expect to see? What do you want to see? I'm looking a lot at, at the sustainability. I can have good welfare. Cattle handling's improved. The, our trade association, the National Cattlemen's Beef Association, has been doing workshops for the last 10 years. So the handling's better. But then just as we got the handling better, we're getting more things structurally wrong with the cattle, 
and the and the pigs that make them difficult to handle because they're stiff and sore and don't want to move. And it's a problem that crept up gradually. And I've gotten quite a bit of pushback on that, which I did not get on fixing slaughterhouses. Why, why do you think you're getting pushback? Well, they want to make them gain really fast. And you see on the slaughterhouses, first of all, I didn't have to buy expensive things to fix most of the slaughterhouses. Management and repairs and simple changes. Some of the stuff on farms to fix is going to you know, cost some money. But on the other hand, I explain we're getting um, congestive heart failure where a big fat animal uh, right before it's time for him to go to the slaughterhouse dies in the feed yard from a heart attack. You have too many of those. There's no profit in that. You see, and the problem crept up gradually. So people didn't see it. It's just like bulldogs that can't breathe. You go back and you look at a 1938 picture of a bulldog. It's actually got some snout. It's got some legs. It functions. So how do we get into this smashed in face freakazoid that we've got now that can't breathe? Mm. It happened slowly. And then young people coming into the industry don't realize that it's totally abnormal. Mm. It's the same thing. I'm going to bash on pets just as bad I'm going to bash on a food animal. And they're really cute. And this one that lives next door to me, he's very cute. I pet him. But... This dog has to constantly keep his tongue partly extended. And do you think it's too much of a focus on profit versus compassion? And it's people like you who are able to to relate to these animals in a way that maybe others can't. Well, the thing is, let's relate in a way we can get stuff done. Buyers are in the driver's seat to change things. I was just on a call this morning about enrichments for chickens. We've got to have clear guidelines. One of the guidelines for broilers says things to perch on. Now, broilers don't do much perching, but they do plenty of climbing up on platforms and ramps. They like to get up on top of stuff. They like to get under stuff, but they don't actually, you know, you give them perches, they don't like wrap their claws around and they just don't seem to do that. We've got to do things that are, are uh, practical. We've also got to start integrating chickens and cattle and all the animals in with the crops, diversified farming. We've got to get away from monoculture. Why do we need to do that? Well, you get a disease in monoculture, you're in so much trouble, it's not funny. Look what happened during COVID with the pigs. 300,000 pigs were destroyed on the farm because a plant shut down due to COVID. That was a wake-up call. One chip factory burns in Japan, and we can't build cars. We've got parking lots full of brand-new, expensive vehicles waiting for three or four chips. It's the same thing. You see, your verbal thinkers overgeneralized. I was talking to an animal welfare group yesterday at the airport, and I said, look, why don't you go to this big company that buys a lot of pork and get them to start inspecting farms? And the problem, we've another thing in dealing with the big corporations, what you do is you deal with a part of that big corporation you buy from. Okay, a big company might have 20 plants, and I can't take the whole company off the supplier list, but I can take that one plant off. Or chickens that got complexes. Pigs, they have complexes. Well, I'm going to go in and inspect the complexes that supply me and look at it in a very practical way. How do we actually make change on the ground? And I'll tell you right now, the power of buyers, that's where they have the power to change it. Because you're working with both the food manufacturers who are slaughtering these animals and then also animal welfare charities who are trying to improve those conditions or get rid of them altogether. So it's interesting that you're a bridge in between those two, but you're saying that the onus really is on the consumer and the buyers. Consumer and the buyers to make them fix stuff, make them clean up stuff. 
And one thing that was bad that happened during COVID was in-person audits. So a lot of places got suspended. And there's a certain amount you can do with video, a certain amount, but you can't totally replace in-person audits with video. Uh, you still have got to go in and inspect places. Okay, for example, a video camera does a really super good job of monitoring, let's say, a chicken catching machine or monitoring stunning. But it doesn't tell me anything about the downer chickens over in the corner of the barn or some other problem that's out in the yard. That's why you've got to look at the whole thing. See, now, as I talk about that, I see it. You can get a problem with woody breast where you get a bird on its back, can't right itself because the range of motion of the wings is messed up. I see that bird. No, that's not acceptable to push the biology to the point where if a bird gets on its back, it can't right itself. You see, that's something specific. You have to back off. But I'm also looking at a whole systems approach process control too. Like egg quality from the breeders. Very, very big issue. What's the, what's the issue there? Can you explain for listeners? Well, you've got to make sure that eggs are fertilized. You've got to make sure that embryos don't die. Um, you don't want a rotten one in there splatting over a tray full of chicks. They have automated equipment that, that pulls out the bad eggs. Well, just straight process control. I want to check the eggs it's pulling out. Is that equipment doing it? Don't just blindly, oh, we've got the latest technology here, you know, and we can just blindly trust it that it's going to pull out the bad eggs. You need to calibrate it once in a while. The same thing's done with metal detection in any food. Um, you have um, uh, objects you put through it to make sure it can find the metal. You don't want metal in hamburger, and you don't want it in, in some vegan thing either. See, it's just straight process control, and that's a new concept. How hopeful do you feel about consumers making the putting the necessary pressure onto businesses to make change on this industry? You're thinking very general. Let's fix things on a more local level. Like, let's say we do some really good integration of cattle with um, crops. Let's say we do that. The other thing that was very important in my career was I wrote a lot of how-to articles. How to design facilities, how to handle cattle. And I put them out on a website where people can get it for free. I have them in my books. In fact, I've got, you know, this is um, my academic, um, I have an academic book on animal welfare. This is the third edition. First edition came out in 2010, but I also have lots of free information. This is my new, um, my new slaughter book, and it's a combination of practical how-to. Then Michael Cockrum, the co-editor, wrote really good scientific review articles. I always try to put the scientific and the practical together. But instead of thinking grandiose generalities, fix something at the local level, then write about it. And I didn't realize until about five years ago how important writing was in my career and getting people to do things. And I realized it when I started getting graduate students, horrible writing, run-on sentences, just can't explain clearly how they didn't experiment. Mm -hmm. Just plain, straightforward writing. So Temple, you've said you've realized the power of writing for your career. What has the writing unlocked? What has it achieved? What are some examples of that? Well, some examples would be I just went to the Tennessee Cattlemen's meeting and I went to another meeting in Texas. It was an autism meeting, but I had a rancher come up to me and he said he had Brahmin cattle and he'd used some of my plants and he just loves the facility. I didn't even know about that facility. It was something he would have gotten off my webpage. Okay, that's an ex a, a specific example mm. of something somebody using something that I did. 
I've seen some legislation that looks like it was just copied off of Grandin.com. And I kind of chuckled and go, well, then it's getting out there. So just writing, and I find that you have to keep talking about a lot of the same things. I mean, some people say, well, Tumble Grandin just talks about basics. But how cattle handling, for example, has gotten better. But you still got people screaming at cattle. You still have to talk about basics. Stunner maintenance. Basics. I've been talking about that for over 20 years. We still have to keep talking about it. It's just like speeding out there in the motorway. You have to constantly uh, keep measuring it and enforcing it. It's the same thing. But I think a lot more local things, and I'm also seeing how there's generalities here, like our beer industry, uh, and I'm also kind of uh, almost appalled at how similar some of the problems we had with COVID with the meat industry. Other factors, such as a factory burning up, affected uh, chip supplies. You see, this whole big is fragile. If we just do monocultures and some disease gets in there, I can wipe out the, you know, a food, a cereal crop, a real critical one. You know, they, they more diverse systems. Here's an interesting example from plants. And I wrote an article on animal welfare and pork industry welfare problems during COVID-19. And it's open access article. And I found this cool book review in the wall, I think it was the Wall Street Journal or New York Times, I kind of mixed them up, but there was a book review in one of these papers about how trees can have either a centralized supply chain or diversified supply chain for getting nutrients through their leaves. The ginkgo plant, if you look at it, just the veins just go out like this. So if you rip the leaf, the leaf's really in trouble. Other plants, more modern plants, they have convoluted supply chain routes of veins. More expensive more metabolic expensive for the tree to make that. But if I rip the leaf, it's got a better chance of living. So it's the same thing. Centralized supply chain versus a more expensive, more diversified supply chain. And this goes back to the big is fragile. But big when it works is very efficient. You can actually have really good animal welfare in a large plant. Um, you can have very good food safety there. But when it breaks, you're in trouble. The same thing with the electronic chip industry. You see, now, as I talk about this, I'm seeing a chip factory that we closed down right where I live in the late 90s, and they gutted the building out. And when I drive home from the airport at night, I'd go by the building. I could see in there just the bare concrete columns. Everything had been taken out of it, and then they converted it to offices. I used to get angry every time I went by that. I knew it was wrong. Now we're paying for it. Got to have more diversified supply chains for really critical stuff like food and electronic chips. And so, Temple, if people want to find out more, which books would you recommend of yours that, you, that, that they read? All right, well, let's just talk about my autism books. My autobiography is Thinking in Pictures. The book where I talk about the science behind different kinds of thinking, like my kind of thinking, mathematical thinking, and word thinking is it would be the autistic brain. And then my most general autism book for teachers and parents would be The Way I See It. Those would be, um, and then of course I've got books for livestock. This is uh, Temple Grandin's Guide to Working with Livestock for Small Farms. A lot of people in Europe would really like this book. Um, then I have my textbooks and I showed you Improving Animal Welfare Practical Approach. And then we got to get kids off the devices and get them outside doing stuff. Yes, because you've written about the importance of going outside um, for building out imagination and that kind of thinking, right? Well, that's the problem. And the other problem we've got in school is my kind of mind can't do higher math. I wanted to be an aerospace engineer. Mm. I wanted to design uh, 
artificial hips. I had to drop a class in biomedical engineering because of the math requirements. But the thing is, you need my kind of mind. To solve the problems. You see, there's two parts of designing, like building a big food factory. My kind of mind makes all the clever machinery. And the other kind of mind is going to do things like snow load on the roof, wind load, boilers and refrigeration. Let's look at the Mars rover. The mathematicians got it there. But somebody in the shop did the beautiful hand-done wiring that both the U.S. Mars rover and the Chinese Mars rover has. You can, she's taken, they take selfies of themselves with the robotic arm. Look at that wiring. Two or three people in a shop did that. Doesn't get enough respect. You need my kind of mind. It's great to see how different ways of thinking can solve problems um, on a large scale as well. What actions would you like business owners or investors to take off the back of this interview? Uh, well, investors, there's a, you know green investors, but we've got to be careful what we do because on the sustainability thing, a certain amount of biofuels is sustainable. But then I read about a horrible scheme where they were cutting trees down in the U.S., shipping it, shipping it on ships to the U.K. and burning it in a power plant. That's not sustainable. You see, we've got to. Um, you can. I'm concerned about some of the carbon credits and mm. all the ways they can cheat on that stuff. Absolutely. You see, this gets. I mean, I can just think of a hundred ways to cheat on that. Mm. We've got to make sure that when you make force a company to do something, that it's working. And I tend to look at um, at either things I can directly observe or things I can observe with the satellite. Oh, I love satellites. Oh, they're great for monitoring crops. There's no way they can <laughs> mess around with them and fake up the results. You see, but you see, that's a photograph. They have marvelous sensors for telling you how much water's in the ground. Magicians made those sensors. I don't know how they work, but I know how to calibrate them. It's not abstract. Something I can directly observe or something where it's a sensor that, okay, let's say an oil refinery is putting out pollutants. Well, I want to put sensors up around it. And maybe private citizens will monitor those sensors. And sensors now are getting cheap. You see, that's not a theory of how much bad stuff it puts out where there's a zillion ways you can fake it. To summarize, sort of really trying to examine end-to-end um, production and process to make sure that everything is truly well, as sustainable take, as it take seems. That, that livestock's long shadow. They did the, they calculated the entire whole life cycle of the um, cattle, but they didn't do the whole life cycle of the car, which would include the steel manufacturer and, you know, getting the oil out of the ground to make the gasoline. That's all part of the life cycle. The other thing that people forget on methane is rice puts out methane. And um, we have a lot of ruminant wildlife in the U.S. They put out a lot of methane, too. Yeah. Here in Elk, they put out methane. They're ruminants just like cattle are. Absolutely. Great. We have to start looking at how do we solve a problem? How do we actually do it? Not talk about it, not theorize about it. Do it. Some of the theory people need to get out of the office and actually go look at stuff. And they'll find out where things are good and they'll find out where stuff is bad. Well, Temple, it's been wonderful chatting to you and incredibly enlightening. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to this week's episode of Control Alt Meat. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to share your favorite episodes on social media to help us reach more listeners like you. You can also visit controlaltmeat.com to learn more.